0: Hello, welcome back to season three of Origin Story. In each episode, we take a word, idea or figure from history, explain its origins and talk about how it influences political discourse today. I'm Dorian Linsky, author of 33 Revolutions Per Minute and the Ministry of Truth.
1: And I'm Ian Dunt. I'm the author of How Westminster
0: Works and Why It Doesn't and a columnist for the i Newspaper. So we are now doing part two of the life career of Winston Churchill. The man, the myth, the controversy. The racism. The racism. <laughs> The the booze, the cigars, <laughs> and so on. Um, we left you last time on a cliffhanger. Who knew what was going to happen in the 1930s? <laughs> but Ian, I thought before we do that, I mean, it, it what's quite telling is, is the 1930s is known as his wilderness years, mm. a phrase which he invented, mm. among other phrases which he invented, popularized, or so on. And so before we actually get back to the chronology, I think you wanted to talk a little bit about you know some of the myths and ideas attending to his his personality his his you know alcoholism arguably his depression his way with words you know some of his sort yeah. of famous witticisms and so on because that's a that's a huge part of it isn't it
1: I mean I remember being th- this is this, if you would ask me put away all the sort of stuff around the politics what you know say stuff about Winston Churchill mm. I would have said depressive alcoholic witty. Hmm. And I mean, he is witty, but most of the witticisms are nothing to do with him. Uh, the really famous stuff. I'm shocked. And, and the rest of it doesn't really stand up too well either. Like the, I'm not so sure that he had depression at all. So the black dog is the classic sort of thing. You know, mm-hmm. he'd refer to my black dog. He referred to it once. In a letter to his wife in 1911, he said, "Alice interested me a great deal in her talk about a doctor in Germany who completely cured her depression. I think this man might be useful to me if my black dog returns. He seems quite away from me now. He never mentions it again.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: When you look at he does say the words depression, I'm suffering from depression, but every time he does it, it's when everything's gone catastrophically wrong for him, right?" It's like, you know, after the Dardanelles or something. It's, <laughs> yeah, not, it's yeah. just like, it's not like depression should just be upset when stuff goes wrong for you. Yeah, yeah. you know, so I'm not convinced, actually, when you look at it, that he really did have depression. He just had a pretty standard thing of like, I'm unhappy when my career so looks if he, like If he'd done right.
0: CBT, then the therapist <laughs> would have gone, is there any reason why you're depressed? And he just goes, I, my poor judgment <laughs> yes, led to 300,000 casualties <laughs> at Gallipoli. And the therapist would go... That's not depression. That no. is a legitimate response to actual facts. We don't need to talk about your parents. Although, in fact, <laughs> but, they fucking well should And then have. he would just yeah. produce these books. <laughs> I've already
1: covered my parents. I mean, and then maybe, maybe we do need to talk about that. He them. did cry a lot, though. He did cry a lot. And actually, I want to talk about that in more detail. It's fascinating. You go all the way through his life. It's almost like every page, you know, they'll say, and Winston was in tears. Yeah. He's just blubbing away. He's constantly crying. The mm-hmm. drinking... Right. And I have myself, in sort of interviews on, you know, MP's behaviour, sort of constantly raised the thing, wow, if you, you know, if you really want to get rid of, you know, people who've got problems, you're going to get rid of Churchill because he was an alcoholic. He, I don't think he was an alcoholic at all. What he was, was a heavy drinker who could handle his drink.
0: Okay. Now, but he handled a lot of drink. He
1: handled a lot of drink. I mean, as he said, the secret of drinking is to drink a little too much of the time. So he was a sipper. But he sipped pretty much throughout the day. I mean, you know, the classic thing is sort of basically almost starts the day with champagne. Well, can I can
0: I tell you what his aide, Sir Ian Jacobs, said? Yeah. Now, I don't know if this is cast iron or whatever. Listen. He claimed that on a typical day, Churchill drank champagne and brandy with lunch, had an afternoon nap, good man, two <laughs> or three whiskey and sodas, then champagne and brandy with dinner, followed by more whiskey and soda. He sometimes had white wine with breakfast, which was like a his breakfast drink. Which, by the way, is... Just,
1: I'm sorry, but it is absolutely bossing it. Like, I mean, it's, it's one thing to have a Bloody Mary or put some orange juice and some champagne. But to actually just sit there and go, no, white wine with my
0: breakfast, I think is really and, boss and level. D- During the war, uh, he smoked um, 16 cigars a day and <laughs> Eleanor Roosevelt, who was more <laughs> abstemious, said it was astonishing to me that anyone could smoke so much and drink so much and keep perfectly well. And that's the bit. Right. That it's actually very rare that you hear someone say he was worse for wear,
1: you know, and, and it does come up. So there's two or three moments mm-hmm. I've noticed in various books where someone goes, no, he was actually quite drunk that evening and he was, ta- he was saying things he shouldn't have been saying and he probably didn't mean. Yeah. But the rest of the time he functions. He, his, his, his line on this was, I've taken more out of alcohol than alcohol has taken out of me. And actually, I think that that's a very beautiful and elegant way of talking about our relationship with any drug of what a healthy relationship with right. it is, and the point that it crosses over into being unhealthy. He undoubtedly drank it out. And by the way, some of it's very funny. I mean, when he visited Prohibition America after that car crash that we talked about, yeah. well, the car crash happened in, in America, he sent a prescription by his doctor, which reads, this is to certify that the post-accident convalescence of the Honourable Winston S. Churchill necessitates the use of alcoholic spirits, comma, especially at meal times. <laughs> The quantity is naturally indefinite, but the minimum requirements would be 250 cubic centimetres, which also made me think I should start measuring my own drinks in centimetres because that would make a lot of sense. But I honestly don't, you don't get the impression it was a problem. And certainly in terms of his capacity to function, it doesn't seem to be. And so I don't think it's alcoholism. I think he was just a heavy drinker.
0: And and alcoholism is connected in the myth of what a lad. Essentially, with, which he which he definitely had a huge part of. Yeah. He loved to talk about how much he drank. With some of the witticisms, I'm afraid I forget which, which book this was from. But there were two, just to give two examples. Mm. One is where he was kind of uh, making fun of grammatical sticklers. He goes, this is the kind of English up with which I will not put. <laughs> Another one is the story of uh, Nancy Astor. Yeah. When she goes, if uh, you were my husband, I would poison your coffee. And he goes, if you were my wife, I would drink it. Yeah. Now, both of these racisms have been tracked to humor magazines. I think one's from Punch and one's from some American mm-hmm. humor magazine. And I've noticed this. The quote, industrial complex that takes place <laughs> online is, is there a certain kind of people where even if they didn't say things, people want to put them in their mouths. And it is Orwell, it's Wild, it's Einstein, yeah, there yeah. are certain Bob Marley, there's just certain people. Where you can't just have this free floating thing. So if you just go, this is a very funny line from an issue of Punch from 1912, people are like, who gives a shit? Hmm. But if you go, well, Churchill said it, and it's not like Churchill was going out there going, oh, no, 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 I never said this. Right. He seemed to kind of like, I mean, it's, it's arguable that maybe sometimes he literally just, he did say this, but he nicked it. Yes. You know, so it surprised me how many of the, I mean, he, there were some famous witticisms that it seems that he definitely did say. Yeah. But I found it fascinating that part of his myth, which has nothing to do with politics, is the banter, Mm. which is disproportionate to actually, you know, what he's saying. None of this... The stuff I remember being brought up
1: as a child, I remember being told that line, the, um, you know, Winston, you're drunk, and and what's more, you are disgustingly drunk. And his response is, Bessie, my dear, you are ugly. And what's more, you are disgustingly ugly. But tomorrow I shall be sober and you should still be disgustingly ugly. Now, that's just lifted verbatim from a 1934 movie called It's a Gift. Really? I mean, yeah. It's, it, it's extraordinary. So many of these little things that, as a schoolboy, you would be told, just do not come from him. And as far as we can tell, would never have been said. I mean, his daughter Mary sort of said, there's no way he would have ever spoken to a
0: woman that way. You know, he would never have just said to a when you are disgustingly ugly. It just wasn't, doesn't sound like it. And there's a weird... I mean, it doesn't say much for the culture that this has been considered for many, many years a delightful witticism. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's actually a horrendous thing to <laughs> say. A fucking terrible thing to say. <laughs> so, yeah, so all of these say, like, partly true that he was prone to black moods, that he did drink a lot, that he was funny. But all of that has been sort of inflated.
1: Yeah, um, again, with the black moods, I just I can't. I just can't see it. I mean, unless we're just going to say, yeah, he was, he was upset. He got a lot done. As
0: somebody who's, you know, who sometimes suffers from depression myself, it's like, I'm not, I'm not getting a lot done. <laughs> you know, and if you're talking about that capacity for comebacks, even like you said reacting badly to something, you know, you lose a fortune in the Wall Street crash and you're just like, right, better earn it all back. Yeah. I mean, that's not depressive behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not normal, traditional yeah, yeah. depressive behavior. So that's really interesting because I had totally assumed that he was just suffering from depression, I had no idea the black dog was one reference very early on in his career. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know what's very early on in his career. I mean, he was right, exactly. Fucking ever. Which brings us to the 1930s. I don't want to set up in what, in what esteem he was held. <laughs> the Liberal MP, Herbert Samuel, in 1930, uh, quipped We all know that in our politics there is nothing so completely obsolete as the Winston Churchill of 10 years before. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. good. The burns, the burns of kind of twenty. Oh, it's just so much better than today. They're just, um, you know, there's no, like, oh, so softy. Like, it's good stuff. Um, Nancy Astor, there again, told Stalin that Churchill was finished. But Stalin said that he thought the British people might turn to him in a crisis. Huh. So, mm. how's off to Stalin, can I say? I mean, on that one very specific point. And this
1: is not going to be the final point in this episode where we say, oh, Stalin very pithily and accurately described something. He, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Also had a downside. He did. Look, so what he is famous <laughs> for, and in fact, he says this in his famous Fulton, Missouri speech of 1946, as he goes, I was basically going out telling everybody, you know, the Nazis are coming. And, and The Gathering Storm, listen, which is the first volume of his book me. about yeah.
1: what, it, really entrenches this myth of he's this lone, vo- yeah.
0: not, not entirely a myth. Yeah. So he was trying to build, he was trying to build a cross party alliance against Hitler, but just got in his own way constantly made, as I can see it, two massive political errors. One was his very right wing opposition to giving India dominion status. Yeah. You know, he really, he had a massive problem with India and yeah. his only allies there were like the, the sort of headbanger Tory right. And his public support for Edward Eighth during the abdication crisis you know, who, is, as, as we know, you know, is pretty kind of friendly towards the fascists. So, I mean, I know he had a friendly relationship with Edward, but that, again, politically, it just seemed like the worst thing to do if you're trying to get people on your side. It's funny,
1: you know, so with the Indian thing, I mean, it fits it. Like, it, imperialism is one of his absolute core yeah, is, yeah, you know, and it is extremely consistent in its ugliness and in its slightly more elevated, you know, civilizing mission sort of thing. But even then, I mean, look at someone like Leo Amory, right? So he's extremely pro-imperialist, you know, right the Tory party and ally. There's just points where he's just writing in his diaries, it's like, when it comes to India, yeah. Winston Churchill was not strictly sane, you know, he no. is way off, you know, even people that are really quite savage and harsh on this stuff, which is like, no, he's way off the
0: reservation. And again, I'm, I'm going to return to this, the, the, you know, that his anti Communism really you know, totally skewed his judgment. So in the fascism episode, we mentioned that he praised Mussolini, but he specifically praised him for his anti-communism, for being a bulwark against Bolshevism. He was not like a huge across-the-board mm-hmm. Mussolini fan. He also liked Franco's anti-communism, but was not pro-Franco. I think he could have slipped into being that
1: very, very common at the time of conservative and liberal who would have been like, well, fascism is not great, but it's better than communism. So, you know, you mm, can mm. see these guys. What's interesting is he does pull back. So, I mean, when he's he's in a, a private conversation with Lord Rothermere in, uh, in the 20s <coughs> and he Brethren says, "Well, Britain could use a Mussolini." This is well before sort of Hitler, and Churchill replies, "Our society is very broadly and deeply founded. We are not in the position that we have to choose between various unconstitutional extremes." So there is even well before this stuff. There's a sort of recognition of like, no, not not quite that. That looks a bit grim, a bit
0: gangstery. But because he was such a big personality, other people there are other people's political enemies. One said that he could become a British Mussolini and another one said he was like a British Goering. It just none of that is right. It's just not right. Yeah. And the, the thing is,
1: he is a, obviously, I think, very, very obviously not a fascist. And B, he is a genuine anti-fascist, even in those early moments. And, and as we spoke about in the previous episode, you know, the, the Mussolini, star, it's, it's a different sort of world to what we see in the sort of late 30s. See, th- this is the key quote to me, right? This is the moment that I think give, really paints in proper light what he is. What the distinction is, because there are, I mean, Leo Amory says, you know, in terms of India, I don't see how Churchill's position is that different to Hitler's, you know, yeah. in terms of basically the racism, the murderous yeah. racism. So there's this moment in 1917, and this is the description from Liberal MP Alexander McLean Scott about a moment he has with Churchill. As we were leaving the House late tonight, the House being the, the House of Commons, he called me into the chamber to take a last look around. All was darkness except a ring of faint light all under the gallery. We could see dimly the table, but the walls and the roof were invisible. Look at it, he said. This little place is what makes the difference between us and Germany. It is in virtue of this that we shall muddle through to success, and for lack of this, that Germany's brilliant efficiency leads to her final disaster. This little room is the shrine of the world's liberties. And I think that that concept in him of this little room is ultimately he is a parliament man. Yeah, if you're a parliament man, you're not a fascist. You know what I mean? That is just not what you are. And I think uh, to me that that where it is the key distinction. This guy so far, you know, into imperialism and racism. What is the difference between him and Hitler? Is ultimately it lies in that concept of this little room.
0: But I think that you know I think hypocrisy is 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 quite an easy charge to make. But I think sometimes like, well, what seems like hypocrisy is somebody's is often somebody's own definitions. Of like where they're drawing the 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 boundaries, Mm -hmm. and so you know he just had these sort of blind spots on on imperialism, which to him would not have been hypocritical. In in his mind, it was sort of very clear what he was for and what he was against. And yet, now you go, well, how come this? Mm -hmm. You're against this atrocity, but not that atrocity. Mm -hmm. And it almost seems as if he was, you know, consciously aware that he was just like being a hypocrite. But I think, and unfortunately, this does stem from this you know, racist, imperialist prejudice. He's just like, well, that, that bit doesn't count. <laughs> yeah, which is right. which is terrible, but some, something different to just sort of craven hip- hypocrisy.
1: The abdication is, it, I mean, th- this really where you can attack him very, very, very strongly is just his catastrophic tactical misjudgments. I mean, the abdication crisis comes in, in 1937. It's um, Edward VIII wants to marry Wallace Simpson. Now, That part is less interesting to me than the fact that Edward was a Nazi sympathizer, right? And we could have easily ended up with a Nazi sympathizer king. Instead, I mean, Churchill, who's built up by 1937, all of this stuff, warning about Nazism, just trashes it all. You know, just throws away all of this just over the abdication, over this petulant child on the throne. To the point where, I mean, there's one point where he's shouting in the comments trying to defend the king. When everyone's turned against him, it's clearly going to happen. Lord Winston said it was, quote, one of the angriest manifestations I've ever heard directed against any man in the House of Commons. Churchill storms out of the chamber shouting, you won't be satisfied until you've broken him, will you? Then, you know, you get through to the actual coronation and he just turns to to his wife and says, oh, the other one would never have done. He's just saying, like all of the stuff, he sort of realized, oh, I was just completely wrong about that. One historian said, and it's completely accurate, he said, throughout the abdication crisis, Churchill made every possible blunder. <laughs> and it's he's just like, what are you doing? It's a real moment, a catastrophic misjudgment. And,
0: and you used to say, obviously, very good on the on the dangers of Nazism, understood exactly what Hitler was up to, but perhaps less well-known, was like very naive about Italy and yes. and and I think, as you suggested, again, for racist reasons, very naive about Japan. I yeah. think, well, they're not going to be very good, are they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so but it's the French of, army, very strong. They'll definitely stop the Japanese. But, but he, because he, he comes to it with all these, I mean, let's face, he is in his 60s, you know, and you do have these kind of fixed ideas in your head. And one of them was just like, well, the French will never let you down. Yeah. You know, the Navy is the heart of the yeah. military. The Japanese are... Hmm. Aren't up to much, you know what I mean? And so he comes to that, and and so he's remembered for being. I think it's often the case in history, you're remembered for the things that you were right about if they're big enough. Yes. And you don't remember the things you were wrong about. We should also
1: complicate his warnings because he primarily focused on sort of industrial production and on air power and on the seas. But actually, if you were to speak to most military historians, what we lacked during World War II was men. Mm. It was the ability to have an army that could operate within Europe. And in fact, he never, ever suggests that. He never calls for conscription throughout that period, probably because he knew that it would, you know, up with this, they would not put, right? That That was just in that sort of circumstance, you just can't do it. It's constantly about the changing over of civilian factories for wartime purposes, but he doesn't get the heart of it. And the thing that made, I think, Britain so weak when the war did actually start. We have to say at this point that Origin Story only exists thanks to our many amazing Patreon subscribers. So thank you to Rachel, David Martin, Natasha Broke, Larissa Hume, and Lewis Paget. Thank you very much, guys. To find out more about subscribing to Origin Stories, click on the link in the show notes.
0: So obviously he is most celebrated for us for denouncing the Munich agreement, falling out with Neville Chamberlain over appeasement. Absolute banger of a speech. You could quote like the whole thing because some of it's very florid. I just want to give two phrases to show you like almost like what makes a good orator it is having different modes. Mm-hmm. So he goes, the German dictator, instead of snatching the victuals from the table, has been content to have them served to him course by course. Yeah. Which is very vicious and witty and damning. It's brilliant. And then he goes talking about the fate of Czechoslovakia, and he goes, "All is over. Silent, mournful, abandoned, broken. Czechoslovakia recedes into the darkness." Fucking. Which hell. is a completely. It, it's like it's 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 heartbreaking. It's almost like apocalyptic.
1: That speech is, I think, the best speech that he ever gives, mm. and because it's not at the moment that he's prime minister. We will talk about the genius of his language soon, but it's at the point where no one fucking likes him. Mm. He is despised. He has to wait for three days of that debate with the Munich Agreement, the peace in our time, everything's gonna be okay, before he's even allowed to stand up. When he does, he's being constantly shouted at. And what are the words that he starts with? He says, I will begin by saying the most unpopular and the most unwelcome thing. You know, this is what like, there is a thing of you see the quality of someone, when they are despised on all sides. And he was despised on all sides. It's hard to overstate how unpopular that position was at the time. And if we look look at the country, like even in 1935, 11.6 million people had signed the peace ballot by the League of Nations. This was pacifism, absolutely a wash over Britain. Look at the British press. After the Night of the Long Knives in Germany, this is what the Times wrote in its editorial. Herr Hitler, whatever one may think of his methods, is genuinely trying to transform revolutionary fever to moderate and constructive effort.
0: I'm sure I've read the whatever one may think of his methods formulation. (laughs) In, in, a, in, a, in a right-wing newspaper just the other day. I mean, right. it's a classic. Lloyd George, Lloyd
1: George, to the German ambassador to London, Hitler is the greatest piece of luck that has come to your country since Bismarck and personally, I would say since Frederick the Great. you really i mean this is when the foreign office were insisting that the english football team give the nazi salute at the olympic stadium Mm. in berlin this is when the american ambassador joseph kennedy was saying we all have to live quote we all have to live together you know with the totalitarians in his own support base his local constituency party in epping he's now an mp there make a coordinated and very sophisticated attempt to remove him now if they'd succeeded and they very they very nearly did he would have almost certainly felt like he had to run. He would have had the whip removed. He probably had to run in the by-election. He would almost certainly have lost that by-election. He is under complete sustained assault from almost everywhere he looks. And he gets up and he does that speech. And so what comes later, the real thing, the real reason he's given the amount of power that he's given, he becomes minister, is because people remember the guy that was prepared to stand up and make that speech at that point when it was at its most unpopular.
0: And yet, you know, Chamberlain makes him first Lord of the Admiralty when war comes.
1: That's because the invasion of Czechoslovakia flips all of the sort of understandings and the narratives on their arse. And suddenly, anyone who had been
0: pro-approachment looks like a
1: fool, and anyone who hadn't, which is basically Churchill and a handful of others, suddenly look like saviors.
0: Now, I think for the purposes of brevity and clarity, you know, we're going to have to be very careful about getting into like, uh, you know, the, the details of military engagements. But one of the amazing things here is that what in fact, the crisis that brings down Chamberlain in May 1940 yeah. is this sort kind of debacle in, in Norway, which one historian actually said inspired Germany to speed up its invasion. <laughs> it was complicated about kind of blocking up supply ships and stuff, whatever. So it, it goes very badly wrong. And Churchill writes, it was a marvel that I survived and maintained my position in public esteem and parliamentary confidence. Not only that, but the consequences rebound on Chamberlain Yes, and Churchill becomes Prime Minister. Yeah, and he was basically predominantly responsible for what happened. In I know, day. Yeah. Which, is, uh, which is remarkable. And Labour liked him more than the Tories when he became Prime Minister on, on May the 10th, 1940. He received less applause arriving than Chamberlain leaving, mm-hmm. and most of it came from the Labour benches. So even then, it's not like, well, sorry, Winston, we were wrong.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, as he's prime minister, there's several attempts to have votes of no confidence against mm. him, which we forget now. I mean, none of them had any chance of succeeding, but you're like, oh, really? Wow, that was quite out there. And that goes to the heart of something we'll talk about in a moment, which is his catastrophic operational judgment, that he was just mm. not very good at war. What he was very good was about morale, really. There's a moment that I think is, is worth dwelling on for a moment because it's fascinating and it comes to the heart of what he represents and what happened in that moment. And I think it's because as Brits, we're so used to talking about this and our whole sense of national identity being framed around this moment, 1940 to 1941 really, we sometimes fail to see the truth of what took place. But the truth really doesn't lie with Churchill. It lies with Halifax, the foreign secretary, Lord Halifax. Mm. Now, the moment that Chamberlain resigns, he could have gone straight to the king and said, pick Halifax. King would have said, yes, King wanted Halifax. Instead, he goes and he sits down with Halifax in the morning at 10.30 in the morning. And he says, well, I don't really have the support of Labour and the Liberals. I know I need to form a coalition. They won't serve under me. So, you know, you do it. And Halifax gets a stomachache. And that stomachache, I think, saves Western civilization.
0: But doesn't Halifax say that he can't because he's a peer, not an m p so he I has he two, ruled himself out he
1: has two reasons right, he right. so he says well, first of all, I'm in the House of Lords, so I can't go to the Commons. The king himself is very clear afterwards and says, "Well, I can just get rid of the peerage if that's what you need <laughs> yeah, you know yeah, what yeah. I mean like, this is not an insurmountable obstacle to us right now, and the other was that Churchill had more military experience but for several senior historians said that that summer cake is this sort of anxiety moment where he thinks. I don't know if I can do this. Now, a lot of this is interpretation by people, but what we know is he sits in silence. He's not willing to grasp it. Now, at four o'clock in the afternoon, they then called Churchill in. They're having a meeting. And then again, it eventually seems that Churchill would be like, well, OK, so I guess I'll take it. Right? Because it was clear to him that Halifax wasn't going to sort of insist that it would be him. That's very important because this is very quick. I mean, Churchill makes his first speech as Prime Minister on the 13th of May. On the 26th of May, Hadifax first suggests peace terms with Germany. Yeah. Okay. On the 27th, he threatens to resign unless he's allowed to pursue peace negotiations. He again suggests peace terms on the 28th and the 29th. Now, what's Churchill's response? He sits in cabinet and he says, if this Long Island story of ours is to end at last, let it end only when each of us lies choking in his own blood on the ground. And see, this is crucial to me then. Hattifax clearly, if he was prime minister, would have surrendered. Yeah. I think mean, the person that gets it right is Andrew Roberts, who's problematic rules all sorts of reasons, a very right wing, and his book is, you know, I think it's a good book, but it's way too fawning. But he says it, I think, entirely correctly. He says, Halifax was merely a logical rationalist when the need was for a stubborn, emotional, romantic. And I think that is absolutely the case. And, and what follows from that, by the way, I think, is if Britain surrenders and Churchill rightly sort of says, look, if we surrender, they're not going to invade. What they're going to say is, Oswald Morsley is, is going to be uh, mm-hmm. the prime minister, and we will be basically a slave state. Uh, I think if that happens at that point, I do think Russia falls, because I think Operation Barbarossa happens before the winter. Yeah, yeah. Okay? And once that happens, the scale of death that we are talking about in Eastern Europe, and that's not even to contemplate the quite probable outcome of saying, look, if all of Western and Eastern Europe is Nazi, does America actually get to succeed in this war? And yeah. suddenly you were talking about some... You were basically talking about a Nazi world. Th- this moment, and particularly that stomachache, <laughs> you yeah. know, t- I-, I think is one of, it's almost impossible to think of a moment in world history where so much turned on so little.
0: And it's interesting, uh, you know, really kind of when you're reading all, all the background to maybe sort of reassess some of those, those speeches, right? Because Churchill was, again, his personal bravery, you know, was obviously, he would flee to Canada if there was an invasion and he was like, no, I will right, die here rather than do that. And his really famous speech, one that you know when you're a kid, You know, fight them on the beaches, fight the streets. When you think about it, it's like it's super dark. (laughs) It's like fight. It's like fight them on the fucking streets. It's not like go off to war. It's like fight them in your house. Mm. It's like it's extreme. It's far more. It should be far more scary, you know, than its effect was, and people found it really inspiring. And the weird sort of paradox about him is that he loves. He thrives on adversity. His moment, he said if he could live, relive any year, it would have been 1940. I bet it would. Which is like the scariest year because when his back's against the wall and he has to be defiant and it's like staring down defeat, loves it. Later on, as we'll get to, as soon as the tide of the war turns and it's basically has to get, get ready for victory, he's like really gloomy and pissed off. Yeah. I mean, there are other factors there, but I do feel that there's this, it takes a very specific personality to be... You know, sort of turned into this like man of steel by the contemplation of the absolute worst and then to sell, not watering it down, but to exaggerate the worst to the public and have them filled with that steel as well. Let's break this down because I I think,
1: because you know, what this comes down to, I think, is when his, his daughter Mary was asked about him, she said, the thing to remember about him is he's a journalist. And I think that what he did mm. was primarily journalism <laughs> rather than being a prime minister. There is a period. The period is Dunkirk, June 1940, Fall of France, to Operation Barbarossa, June 1941. It is one year. And at that point, then absolutely, yes. You know, you have lots of Indian soldiers volunteering. You have Australia, of course. Mm. You know, that's true. But ultimately, it is at that point, if Britain falls, there is really nothing standing in Hitler's way. And the crucial part is he has no realistic plan for victory.
0: There is nothing. Well, his plan from day one is like, America has to join the war. If America joins the war, we win. And if it doesn't, we lose. We lose. The reality, yeah, yes. His plan was
1: Hitler does something insane and invades Russia, and then the Japanese do something insane. And and you're just like, well, that seems like, at the point, that would have seemed extremely unlikely. So you're just taking this punishment, no way of seeing how it's ever going to work. And all he has, the only thing he has, are words. Edward R. Murrow, the American broadcaster, said, Churchill mobilised the English language and sent it into battle. And I think that's exactly what takes Mm. place. And the manner in which he was able to do that comes down to the specificity of his character, right? So partly it was that mixed attitude to war and like during the First World War, he, he wrote to his wife, in 1909, much as war attracts me and fascinates me with its tremendous situations, I feel more deeply every year what vile and wicked folly and barbarism it is. I am interested, geared up and happy. Is it not horrible to be built like that? I pray to God to forgive me for such fearful moods of levity. And that sort of bizarre relationship he has with war, I think helps here. Because yeah. he can express it in this way that it, it basically casts you as the lead in an action film.
0: Yeah, You know, you are Mel you Gibson do that. fighting against, you know. But, but he's not sort of flippant about it. There's a quote from 1932, which I, I didn't write down, but he says something like, you know, you cannot have another war. All war is now is like blood, sweat. And tears essentially oh he reuses that pretty much mm. the same words he uses when he's in the war going all I have to <laughs> offer you you know and so it's this sort of re- this thing of like being kind of revolted by it and excited by it and I, I don't know whether that I don't know what I think I think the warmonger covers quite the sort no, of no. weirdness
1: yeah. of his re- relationship to war his use of language then is extraordinary right so notice that on the beach of speech they're short words. They're practical words, there's no abstraction, you know what each of these objects refers to. They're predominantly Anglo Saxon. I think almost every single there's one no of them vi- is Anglo Saxon. Vi-
0: yeah, it's words. not like Vic snatching the victuals from the table, is it? It's yes. much more direct. <laughs> that, exactly, yeah. And that
1: was all the way through. So there's one point where he's sort of told, oh, in the event of a German invasion, we're going to put out this broadcast saying stay put to the public. And he's just like, no, 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 you won't. So first of all, it's, it's an American slang. Second, it doesn't express the fact that people have not been put anywhere. What is the matter with stand fast or stand firm? Of the two, I prefer the latter. It is an English expression and it says exactly what is meant He clearly got that thing of how you communicate with people. The words themselves, he would use the word foe instead of enemy. And that kind of archaic, it was already archaic at the time. Gives you that sense of being in this long historic struggle, you know, that you're part of as a nation that you've been in several times before. He was very good at situating people within history to give that sense of destiny and fate. Like Orwell said, he might be the grandson of a duke, but he was not a gentleman. He was not just a decent chap. He was a ruthless, stubborn bastard. And that came across in the language that he used. And I think that's what people needed to hear. The accent that he had. Like it's not when you hear back, most of the people at that time, you have that kind of received, educated BBC voice, like you're being strangled, right? He didn't have that. It came from before he was actually too old for it, before the modern educated accent of the time. It was Edwardian, as Orwell said, again, well, I think really is brilliant on Churchill. He speaks with the Edwardian upper class twang, which to the average man's ear sounds like cockney <laughs> and it does right, it's right, right. just not as alienating. The language is also oppositional. So take, I mean, I, I take a point on on whether this line of his is true. If this Long Island story is to end at last, let it end only when each of us lies choking in his own blood on the ground. You see how the beginning of it, this Long Island story mm. sounds like a children's history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you go straight into lies choking on his own blood in the <laughs> ground like that. To do that with language, that sense of um, flipping expectation, as you do with a joke, to go from safety to danger, from soft to hard, yeah. is how you just keep vivid attention on what you're saying. It would not normally be worth going to this level of detail on someone. And by the way, actually to add to it, I think that his emotions, the fact that he's almost always crying... Allows him this access to what will be emotional for other people, to what might make them cry. To well, I think what he was might seeing their
0: heartbeats. But I think he was seeing like crying in the Blitz, visiting some bombed out right, or right. neighborhood or whatever, and people really responded to that. It's not like that awful scene in the in the darkest hour where he's on the tube. Right, yes, yes. going, go and do it, Winston. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he he did go out and try and kind of connect with the public, like I said, in a way that you never Neville Chamberlain could not. Well, never be able to do. Well, he felt it. He felt this stuff in his heart. Because he felt
1: it, because he was that kind of person he could communicate it. Without this journalist's capacity for language, you are dealing with surrender to the Nazi war machine and not of the political class. I think of the country. He would sell it later as, it was my job to mm-hmm. demonstrate how the lion was roaring. I don't think that's true at all. I think that he was the one that was roaring and could imbue that in the public who needed someone like him there and we're going to take away a lot from Churchill over this for good reasons on the morality but just because this is a story that we've heard so often doesn't stop it from being true and of absolutely pivotal importance in human history
0: yeah it's one of those things where like the most famous bit is genuinely like (laughs) incredibly fascinating and impressive you know it's Mm. not it's not like overrated (laughs) I would say uh, now, now, I mean, there's a bit of a challenge here because obviously you know, we do not have time to do military strategy. We're not military historians. But I would say allegation six is that he was actually bad at military strategy, right? Yeah. So Stephen Napier in Military Genius or Menace says, ultimately, Churchill's military strategies largely failed Britain during the war and arguably prolonged it unnecessarily. Too many adverbs there, Stephen. He mentions Norway. He mentions failures in Greece, Yugoslavia, Crete, the Japanese invasion of Singapore, you know, underestimating the fall of France. He's being deluded about his military skills. Great quote from FDR, who said that Churchill had 1,000 ideas a day, four of which were good. Mm. And his whole thing, and we're going right back now to Gallipoli or probably in the Battle of Omdemann or whatever. Mm-hmm. His whole thing is like aggression and momentum. Basically doing anything is better than doing nothing. Yeah. And so sometimes there's these disastrous ways like raid in Dieppe where lots of Canadians die unnecessarily. It was just a you know freaking waste of time. His sort of idea of of how to sort of run the war was quite at odds with America's and Russia's. Now, sometimes he was raw he had certain ideas, he was obsessed with the Mediterranean. He goes, from the south, do it from the south. Mm -hmm. Really resistant to uh, the invasion of France uh, that we now know as Operation Overlord D-Day. You see, I think that that's where he comes out okay. Like all of the individual decisions and the list you just gave, you you could make the list
1: run for a long time, were completely catastrophic. Mm. And as AJP Taylor, the famous historian, said, Gallipoli was never far from his mind, as example, not warning. Okay, he just kept <laughs> doing it again. Do it again. Yeah. And, and naturally, I think everyone, if you're like, oh, so is he going to be in charge of another amphibious assault at the end of this? Because that doesn't sound like it's going to go terribly well. But nevertheless, the fundamental point was to delay the second front. Now, Stalin couldn't handle that because, of course, he needed a second front right. so that it wasn't just Russians bleeding out. I mean, the real story of World War II, right, in the end is Russia defeats Germany. That is the actual story. Nine out of ten Germans killed during that war were killed by Russians. Mm -hmm. Okay. Or sorry, were killed in Russia. You know, the winter itself did a lot of the work. You know, that was where it just got ground into it. Stalin's assessment was England provided the time, America provided the money, and Russia provided the blood. Right. And I think that is probably the pithiest description of how that worked. So if you have the Second Front when Stalin wants it. It's just going to be a disaster. Now, at this point, there's huge consensus for it. So you have the communists are spray painting it. They're probably not using spray paint because it probably hasn't been invented. But they're writing the word Second Front now all over London. At the same time, you have Lord Beaverbrook is calling for it. The Americans want it. The Americans have been demanding it from the moment they entered the war, led by uh, General George Marshall, the chief of staff. The reason Britain doesn't want to do it is because they think it's going to be a disaster. And Churchill manages to delay the invasion of France in 1942 and 1943 following this fundamental approach which was basically to draw down the Germans into Africa and the Mediterranean before landing the killer blow in Normandy and he does to his credit in 1941 in a series of 4 minutes that he writes on HMS Duke of New York outline that precise strategy which is the one that was followed and the one that worked and most historians who would now say if you tried to invade France yeah. in 42 or 43 it would have been catastrophic so it's it's caveated, and there is a, a lot of contested opinion there. But for most people writing about this, that overall wartime strategy was actually the correct one.
0: Another criticism of him was was basically that, you know, who was, was close to him? His cronies were Beaverbrook, mm. around the Daily Express, Brendan Bracken, the Ministry of Information, and a terrible guy called Frederick Lindemann, Viscount Cherwell, yeah. a physicist who was a racist, anti-Semite, and eugenicist. Yes, yeah, he really got the full and people really, really resented that these were like, you know, Churchill's close buddies, cronies, really. Very tense relationship with Alan Brooke, the chairman of the, the chiefs of staff, who I thought gave a, a brilliant summation. I think at the end of the war, he goes, it's far better that the world should never know and never suspect the feet of clay on that otherwise superhuman being. Without him, England was lost for a certainty. With him, England has been on the verge of disaster time and again. (laughs) Never have I admired and disliked a man simultaneously to the same extent. (laughs) And this is his top general, you know, and that's that same. Even in the moment, he's just like, oh, my God, like we need him. But he's... He keeps fucking up, mm. you know, and at one point he just goes, we, you know, I just cannot get him to face the fact I'm getting very doubtful about his balance of mind. Mm. This is before D-Day. Mm. So really he's got all these weaknesses we're not going to go into about military strategy, but also he's obviously distracted by the fact that he's kicking to these conferences with Roosevelt and, and Stalin. And Tehran, in 1943, which, by the way, is the starting point for, or was 1984, convinced him that Britain's power was declining. He was squeezed between America and Russia. He goes, "I do not believe in this brave new world." And so his sort of spirit started fading yeah. once the tide turned, and he became this quite diminished figure, which I think helps explain what we're just about to get to, is to say, the 1945 election. And there's this amazing story. Around, this, around towards the end of the war, where he went through an entire lunch with the songwriter Irving Berlin, writer of White Christmas, believing he was talking to Isaiah Berlin. <laughs> After talking to him at length about the state of the war and Roosevelt's re-election prospects, he was very disappointed by the man he kept calling Professor. <laughs>
1: I can't, believe, I can't believe that's the first time I heard that story.
0: That's Amazing, insane. not 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 like maybe his sharpest.
1: Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Now, I think we should do allegation seven. In 1943, between 800,000 and 3.8 million, it's a huge estimate range, Indians in the province of Bengal died from famine and largely, in fact, disease springing from the famine. The main problem was not food shortages, but inflation. So it was a political failure. There were things that could have been done. There were military reasons going, well, if I, I can't divert ships from the war effort to import rice to Bengal. But also, he obviously just did not care. As Leo Amory said, he, he's, not, yep. he's not really sane on the subject of India. And a fundamental lack of compassion. The food was there; it's just they couldn't afford it. And so there were basic, anybody historian can look and go, there were basic interventions that could have been made and were not. Yes. Now exactly what his motives were, you know, we can never be sure, but it is a failure that led to the deaths of it seemingly millions of people who he seemed to have no respect for. This is the part that, you know, where y- you can't get out
1: of your head what he said About people from India, Mm, right? Right. Because he said it over and over again. It's not like it was just the one quote that's been taken. You know, he said it over and over again. Field Marshal Wavell, who had been sent there, he pleaded London for more grain. He didn't get it. He asked for 1.5 million tons of food in early February 1944. It was denied. He wrote to London, I feel that the vital problems of India are being treated by His Majesty's government with neglect, even sometimes with hostility and contempt. Now, shortly afterwards, it was called in the Netherlands the Hunger Winter of 1944 to 5. The RAF mounted huge efforts to drop food into the Netherlands. And Wavell said, there seems to be a, quote, very different attitude towards feeding a starving population when the starvation is in Europe. Mm. And I think, like, there, there are some accusations on the McGough Farm, which is that, you know, that, that Churchill actively did it as a form of genocide, which is just complete nonsense. Right. What it is, is I think... I mean, it's, it's, it's worse than this, really. But it's a complete refutation of that higher imperialism that he expressed. Right, the you're looking after one. your, yeah, yeah. your subject. You're know, yeah. this great civilizing yeah. sort of project, you know, and they need, you know, you're careful. It's just, no, you didn't give a shit about any people, you couldn't stop yourself from slandering and issuing slurs against them on a racist basis. And then surprise, surprise, you know, sure, there's competing demands for, you know, your resources and your capacity, including your transport capacity, sure, (laughs) but it's not unfair to take the least charitable interpretation of his decision-making on the basis of what he himself said about people who
0: were there. I don't really see it. It's quite interesting that Roy Jenkins just like flies past this one. Oh, really? Because it's quite easy if you're doing... Tony Pandy or the poison gas mm-hmm. thing it's quite easy to go well actually guys yes it's not what it seems whereas with this it 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 simply is as far as I can can tell so anyway there's many, many World War II very busy I think you probably do a whole podcast <laughs> about World War II uh, but we want to get to to allegation eight which is the Gestapo speech we well, sort of losing his he's a very faded character at this point. He makes this speech. The crucial point is no socialist government conducting the entire life and industry of the country could afford to allow free, sharp or violently worded expressions of public discontent, free speech union. They would have to fall back on some form of Gestapo, no doubt very humanely directed in the first instance. Mm. Now, using the word Gestapo against Clement Attlee, his staunch ally during World War II, and a very chill dude, yes. and not remotely, if if either of those people would have said, which of these two people could be an authoritarian, mm. anyone would have gone Churchill, right? Mm. So it's just mad. It doesn't work. He, and, and he was personally popular, and the Tories were very unpopular. So what does he do? He puts the party first mm. and turns on, the, the the entire country has just gone, but you've just gone through the whole war with the Labour Party. And now you're going that they might be Nazis. and. And it just seems like there's something about whether or not I suffer from depression. There's something quite mentally unwell at this point. He's waiting for the election result, which as we all know is a you know, landslide for, for Labor. He dreamed that he saw his own corpse lying under a sheet on a table oh, wow, and said, I didn't know that. this is the end. <gasps> oh, fuck like was genuinely and there's a a revisionist biographer john charmley but i think he makes a good point here churchill stood for the british empire for britain independent for an anti-socialist vision of britain by july 1945 the first of these was on the skids the second was dependent solely upon america and the third had just vanished in a labor election victory even darker churchill later said i wish i had died in 1945 oh wow he's still got stuff to do He's there, he still makes important contributions after this point. But in his own mind, he was just like, nah. And I don't
1: really, I mean, you know, that you can make the case that it was a surprising leisure. He comes back as Prime Minister in 1951 to 1955. And he dies in 1965. Very, very long life. And there's some people that make the case that in that last administration, you know, it's actually surprisingly impressive. I don't think it is. And and he has a series of strokes. And there's a whole period there where really, frankly, he should not have been in charge of a country. But they still <laughs> he still didn't have a successor. Really, right. Well, yeah. and, and also he was constantly trying to sabotage Eden. And as it turned out, maybe not for such terrible reasons, because his successor wasn't that fantastic. But
0: Eden was in hospital. Eden was recovering from an operation at exactly the moment that Churchill had a stroke. Right, right. No, but I mean, later on. Once oh, right. Became, oh, sorry. Because it was quite
1: yeah. clear, really, towards the end, that he just, you know... He really just needed not to be there. So it's a bit of a... It's probably a slightly
0: sort of sad ending. Well, this is a a fun fact. You probably know that the highest vote total in any UK general election is the Tories in 1992. Mm -hmm. The second highest... Was Labour in nineteen fifty one? Yeah, when, when they lost. First the first past post, they lost. Which means that Churchill fought three general elections and never won the popular yes, vote. Yes, it's extraordinary. <laughs> Such a wild, it's extraordinary, wild fact. And whether that is because of him or because the Tories just weren't that popular, you know, you can't separate the, the, the sort of the man and the party. The only thing that really impressed me was that he was obsessed with preventing nuclear war, yes. even as he approved the British H yeah. bomb. He was absolutely impressed. His final speech to the House of Commons in 1955 as Prime Minister has this remarkable passage. How a wonderful goodbye. He's really ailing at Mm -hmm. this point. What ought we to do? Which way should we turn to save our lives and the future of the world? It does not matter so much to old people. They are going soon anyway. But I find it poignant to look at youth in all its activity and ardour, and most of all, to watch little children playing their merry games and wonder what would lie before them if God wearied of mankind. And he's still talking about the H-bomb. To conclude, mercifully, there is time and hope if we combine patience and courage. All deterrents will improve and gain authority during the next 10 years. By that time, the deterrent may well reach its acme and reap its final reward. The day may dawn when fair play, love for one's fellow men, respect for justice and freedom, will enable tormented generations to march forth serene and triumphant from the hideous epoch in which we have to dwell. Meanwhile, never flinch, never weary, never despair. (laughs) Which is like, I think it's remarkable that this great war leader's last major speech yeah. was all about preventing war. So you know, you could say on the speech, career does not end on a high note, and yet yeah, he can still summon these, yeah, majestic, and members. you can still get the hints of that
1: of his very weird relationship with war and with violence. Yeah. You know, it's, it's all there. He
0: kept thinking the world was going to... I've got some quotes from, in, in my uh, book about the end of the world mm. where he just keeps talking about how oh, the world's going to end and if I was God, I wouldn't bother doing it again, you know. Right. Like really very, very dark, very diminished.
1: I wonder if that kind of person can have a happy end of life, even in old age, because they need to be at the center of things. You know, and so once someone like that does retire, you know, I just think it might be very happy just to be, it might be very difficult to be happy in that period. Suddenly he wasn't capable of it.
0: But you need the, I mean, there's always nothing to say about the last decade, is it? Cause you're it was, I hate that, by the way. I hate the fact, because
1: the more research you do on people's lives, yeah. the more there's always just this last chapter on the last 10 years. And you're like, oh,
0: fucking hell, I kind of want someone to have but a it nice was the last the failing of the energy. And so that was, I think was that his purpose was waning. Yeah. First, his purpose waned, was the end of the war, really, and then his health waned. And so really, even before he's retired, he's just like, I cannot do the thing that I love to do. Let's talk about his legacy. So, I mean, the
1: first the first part of that is to talk about appeasement. And I think to understand that, we have to understand that the extent to which he was taken on by the Americans. Like, it, it is almost extraordinary to hear that the way that he's talked about is almost uh, to a higher status, really, than any American. Yeah, And I didn't really have any idea of this. And also, yeah, because America
0: was kind of not really
1: rushing to get into the war. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And in fact, some of the the really interesting ideas around this are that he offered them like a way in. So Geoffrey Wheatcroft has a great idea on this of, of like, he allows them to vicariously experience the Battle of Britain as if America was involved. Yeah. Because he constantly alludes to America through that period, basically going, I'm begging you, come give us a hand here. And by that, I mean Jeffrey Weikoff writes they could almost persuade themselves that it was their soldiers who'd been beating a fighting retreat from Dunkirk, that they were the pilots who had won the Battle of Britain, and I think there's an emotional truth in what he's saying there as to how he's been taken. Right. But I mean, really, you hear it. You know, it starts with with Kennedy. It goes on all the way through, and he is evoked in probably the most unhelpful way imaginable, which is again just the simplism, the good versus bad of him, which is basically to say appeasement is always wrong, right. so it's used in Korea, it's used in Vietnam, it's used in Iraq, over and over again. You think like that is, it, it's impossible for anyone to have been more simple-minded about the lesson, including, by the way, his own criticism. Churchill said, the word appeasement is not popular, but appeasement has its place in all policy is like,
0: how can you anyone think well it's always got to be well, munich because no, you know? anytime you want to go to war you just go well this is like munich yes you know <laughs> exactly yeah and it's like but there's other cases where it's good not to go to war yeah. generally <laughs> more often and the idea that iraq was like well nobody nobody was appeasing Saddam so Hussein. say mm. some reason, wasn't making any demands <laughs> like it was just such a mad Literally, they got obsessed in they? because bush had the um had, this, had the bust of Churchill, which became this. Which is talk, talk about the power of symbolism here, is that when Obama removed that, because there was another one. There was like another bust of Churchill mm-hmm. in the you know in in the White House. but He removed this particular one that was like I don't know, staring at him. Um, and that was what prompted Boris Johnson's article about Obama's, quote, ancestral dislike of the empire, mm-hmm. which is a very Chilean, in a bad way, yeah, thing, yes, exactly sort right. of thing to say. But it was interesting that that was what made him so angry that he basically caused a diplomatic incident, you know, later to down the line when that mm. resurfaced, about moving a fucking bust. <laughs> like, who cares? It's so... The, 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 the mm. sort of the fight over the symbolism is so... It's just, it's stupid. It's so unhelpful. And there's a whole, there's quite a good book by Churchill Myths, with multiple authors, including Stephen Fielding. And he says that the mythic church changes over time depending on what the nation requires and it's really interesting that if you actually track his reputation you're quite low in the 50s oh so interesting rebounds in the 70s but also almost polarizes in the 70s to get stronger but then also you get much more serious angry revisionism some of it from david irving who was a, mm. a, a nazi so had his own there's a whole weird nazi <laughs> revision of the church where they just go the worst thing he did was not making peace with hitler which is a whole other not to be confused with the left-wing uh attack um But his reputation kind of changes and changes. I mean, I think the weirdest one recently was, and again, I hate to bring up the the Orwell analogy, but, you know, this idea of kind of the part of the Brexit battle was fought by like combing through old Churchill speeches to see if he was pro or anti-Europe.
1: Well, let's do that. Let's do that bit. Because this is the, for for our country, this is the most crucial part, I think, which is Britain's role in the world. Now, there are some people at that moment, 1946, when the war's done, who realize the truth of where we are, which is that the, the empire's over now, you know, and we are much diminished. So, John Maynard Keynes says in 1946, just before he dies, England is sticky with self-pity and not prepared to accept peacefully and wisely the fact that her position and her resources are not what they once were. Sir Henry Tizard says, We persist in regarding ourselves as a great power, capable of everything and only temporarily handicapped by economic difficulties. We are not a great power and never will be again. We are a great nation but if we continue to behave like a great power, we shall soon mm. cease to be a great nation. Yeah. That last sentence, I would like to have tattooed so on famous. the inside of the eyelids of every conservative MP in this yeah. fucking country. Now, something amazing then happens because I think it's, it's imbued in Churchill and it's partly about the imperialism and it's partly about the racism and it's partly about the relationship with America, that English-speaking people's mm, idea. Mm. that He kind of personifies, I think, the confusion that has lasted in this country until now. So in Zurich... September the 19th, 1946, he is one of the people that first initiates the idea of a united Europe. He says, I'm now going to say something that will astonish you. The first step in the recreation of the European family must be the partnership between France and Germany. And that eventually turns into the European coal and steel community, and then into the European economic community, and then the, the EU. But he himself is... Kind of distinct from that, he says, in 1947, in a speech in the Albert Hall, he imagines four great regional entities. They are Germany and France, united together, essentially the EU, the US, the Soviet Union, and the British Empire and Commonwealth. Mm. Now, of those four regional entities, only one of them does not exist, and that is the British Empire and Commonwealth. And it's just like he sort of, he cannot accept that it is gone that actually it makes more sense for us to go towards Europe. The quote that is used from him by, by the Brexiters, especially, he made it in the Commons in 1953. Where do we stand? We are with them, but not of them. That was his relationship to Europe. And why? Because of his relationship with the Americans. So you even get this quote from Eisenhower in 1953, after he's met Churchill. (laughs) This is what Eisenhower says. He says, it's almost frustrating to attempt to make Winston see how important it is for Britain to show leadership in bringing about this development of European unity. He has developed an almost childlike faith that all the answers are to be found merely in the British-American partnership. Winston is trying to relive the days of World War II. And that goes on throughout. His last cabinet meeting, 1955, The piece of advice he gives to Cabinet as he leaves is, never be separated from the Americans. So what happens is you sort of have this commitment of we are our own power block. Once it gradually becomes clear that really we are not and never will be again, there's this appeal, which I think, by the way, does have a kind of racist element behind it of the English-speaking races, the English-speaking people. So it's all the Americans. We'll save us just like before. But the Americans have their own fucking policy. They don't need our contributions. And so then without being willing to go towards Europe, you just get this baffled isolationism that only Heath, Really has the the confidence to challenge on the right and is pulverized for, and that I think leads us through Brexit to where we are now.
0: There is actually also even a racist interpretation of his belief in the United States of Europe that this was largely like a. a, a, Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. A white union. Yeah. But he first used that phrase, the United States of Europe, in 1930. Wow. And yeah. it's kind of weird. The Johnson book is just quite fascinating because he just, he, he has this thing where he just keeps referring to like uh, the Nazis' plan for dominating Europe as the Nazi EU, <laughs> which is extremely <laughs> Johnsonian, but then later does acknowledge, you know, the, 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 mm-hmm. the, the Europhile side of Churchill. And again, it's one of those things where it's like, well, all it becomes is a game. Of like which quotes do you want to pick? Yes, you can literally just read off a list on on either side because there's some his, his mind changes, there's some ambivalence and so on. He's really not a good soldier <laughs> on either side of the Brexit debate.:
1: No, but I think the most consistent position uh, there is a couple of moments of, of wavering, but the most consistent position is, I think, generally with but not of. Which,
0: by the way, is still much more Europhile than anything you'll hear from the Conservative <laughs> no, Party no. right
1: now. You know, Liz Truss can't even tell you if they're
0: a friend or a foe. On legacy, also, I just wanted to sort of... To get my way. experience of reading Boris Johnson's The Churchill Factor. Yes, 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 excellent. You know the legacy on your soul. is well, you're about to Written in 2014, about? not as bad as you as you might think. It starts with a very weird argument that, that, that Churchill was underrated and forgotten. <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> extremely mental. And then Johnson basically seems to sort of... At some point be writing a kind of veiled confessional so the things he praises him for is, is basically great man he's a great man theory guy isn't he right that being a great thinks he's a great man he's not loves the fact that churchill's always he's good at proving his enemies wrong resolving a stalemate with one bold move following his instincts he's a man of destiny doesn't matter that his political career was quote a feast of bungling full of quote epic cock-ups huh. and approvingly quotes churchill I do not care so much for the principles I advocated as for the impression my words produce and the reputation they give me. Oh. And Johnson clearly sort of identifies with this idea that, that you can emulate all of the that if you've emulated the flaws, the strengths just come with them as part of like a, a special offer. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, no, like the, <laughs> if you just do the kind of, if you just do like the bungling <laughs> and the self regard <laughs> and the naked ambition, you don't then get the greatness. <laughs> so it's kind of this remarkable, but because also pre populist, pre Brexit, pre populist Johnson. Mm. So it's not well, the book he would have written about Churchill even like a couple of years later. So it's, it's quite interesting sort of psychologically. And it does make you realize whether it's Blair, maybe just living out that never be separated from America thing and therefore following Bush, you know, the road mm. to hell. Is this idea that people can just like look to Churchill for like less, like he's a lifestyle fucking guru or like a political sage. And it's just like, well, if I just do that, and it's like, okay, so you're talking about the kind of, you know, the, the 90 year lifespan of somebody who switched parties, who had numerous kind of, you know, defeats and comebacks, who, you know, committed atrocities and acts of great courage and so on and so forth. And that you can just look to that and go, yeah, I'm going to do that. Mm. It's like a songwriter just looking at, or, you know, it's like someone starting to play an instrument and just looking at like John Coltrane and going, <laughs> I'll just do that. <laughs> I mean, it just isn't, how, how hard can it be? And it's like, turns out it's like really, really hard. And, you know, I don't want to do love him or hate him, but certainly like the scale of the personality, the idea of what a politician can be. I mean, it does seem, and by no means, it's, church, it's not the only, you could talk to, you could look at other people, you could look at Nye Bevan or whatever from a, mm-hmm. a different political tradition. But the size just seems really alien today. Yes. You know, and that is maybe partly because it could be many, many, many reasons. One may be just that the, 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 you know the media now, that Churchill would not have had those comebacks. Mm. Maybe he would have just been finished off by one of those scandals, you know, or mistakes. I don't, I don't know what it is, but it just seems like it's, it's so much a figure of another time, and I don't just mean in terms of like views of which we do not approve, but just in terms of that he was allowed to ever get to the point where he became prime minister
1: is itself it's astonishing. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And then also that he had someone that was so, so precisely himself. You know, he is unbelievably eccentric. And constantly when you read stories, it's like, oh, he was talking to the president and then he just thought he'd go swimming in a pond or just start talking about the ducks or whatever. You know, he was just clearly a man who couldn't help but be himself.
0: No focus groups.
1: Now, this man is not working of strict messaging or focus groups. You know, he was, he was really was one of a kind, but now it sort of leaves me with this sort of sadness, really, that I feel we have to be able to talk about our past Mm. and about our country Mm. and the people in it in an adult fucking way. We have to be able to sit there and go, this is a problem. This is, I mean, look at the Bengal famine stuff. It's, like, it's more yeah. than a problem. It is an unforgivable crime, yeah. right? And you have to also be able to hold in your head at the same time that if that person had not been there at that time, the crimes that would have been committed in this world by fascism would have been be- beyond the scale of our moral comprehension. And until we can have that, like adult conversation, even inside of our own minds, we're not really capable of having a sustained intellectual thought about the country that we're part of or the things that it has done.
0: Well, I suppose one of the consistent themes is that we have is just do not turn people into symbols. <laughs> you know, don't, just don't turn people into myths because it will be a lie. And in, in fact, what you end up with is not, you know, although fair play to these historians, to be mm-hmm. honest, because if you're reading those books, you are going to get a richer, Definitely. More, more nuanced picture. But in the political debate, what you don't have, all you have is the myth and the counter myth. And neither of them are true. And so then you just have these two kind of like caricatures banging at each other. And it's like, pick a side, pick a side. Which just sort of, which means not only is that just like less interesting, but completely misleading, not just misleading to us, but misleading to politicians who may learn entirely the wrong lessons and decide that he is only this or only that. So that is why I think it he, he actually is like a, it's not we're going to do loads of politicians in this show. But he does seem perfect for that because he he, he almost wanted to be an idea and <laughs> he's become an idea. But now we see like how narrowing actually that is. I want to take a moment to shout out a huge thank you to some of our brilliant Patreon subscribers. Thank you to Sean, Michelle Lincoln, Richard Ernie, Steve Leyland, and this is all one person of any, Dean, Susan, and the ghost of peas. <laughs> thank you so much. To find out how you can get a personal shout out on the show, plus loads of benefits and origin story merchandise and bonus episodes, click on the link in the show notes.
1: Guys, thank you for bearing with us for our first two two-part episode. These will be sporadic wherever we feel the subject sort of demands it, but yeah. I wouldn't expect it all the time. And thank you for bearing with us. Now that we're back with season 3, there is more complicated, nuanced, moral greyness coming your way in one week. But in the meantime, please go write us some reviews online, go talk to a friend about how absolutely fucking brilliant we are, go click on the star thing or whatever it is that people do on Apple
0: Podcasts, do all that stuff. You can support us on Patreon yes. or through uh, an us Apple money. Podcast subscription, which like Churchill, we like money. No, but it, it really does help because, as I, I, you can tell, there's an enormous amount of um, enormous amount of research involved. There aren't so many slim books on Churchill.
1: No, turns it out it, there aren't. It turns out that's actually quite a fucking problem. It turns out. Once I got past page one thousand, I thought, <laughs> yeah, no, you know
0: what? I would have preferred if it was shorter. <laughs> So it's it's hugely appreciated. And of course, please you can send us your thoughts on this episode. If you're a backer, you can do it on the Patreon page, you can tweet us, and we would love to hear your feedback. Thank you so much, and it's good to be back. See you next week. Origin Story was written and presented by Dorian Linsky and Ian Dunt, with music and audio production by me, Jade Bailey. The producer was Liam Tate and the lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, with art direction by James Parrott and Misha Welsh. Origin Story is a Podmasters production.